Well, we've arrived at the end. Uh, this is our uh, last sermon to work through Daniel. As it turns out, I've been deluged with questions and answers, and so I'm going to do something that is going to lay groundwork for answering many of those questions uh, this morning. And then in two weeks, Steve Winstead is going to be with us, and he's going to be preaching next Sunday. And then the following, I will uh, do what I can <laughs> to address the, the questions that you have raised. And uh, great questions. Love it. And I love what it says about your heart. You want to understand this. You want to get this. So good stuff. Sometimes we need to see something from different perspectives to get the whole. You remember the, the story of the Indian that, uh, the, in India, the elephant that was being described by several blind people. And one felt the ear and said, it feels like paper. One felt the tail, it feels like rope. Another felt the leg, it feels like a tree. Well, they were all right. But the composite tells you about, you know, when you, when you see all these things, then it tells you what you're really dealing with. And that's what I want us to do this morning as it relates to the book of Daniel. Uh, now, I'll be up front with you. Many of you asked the question, so what about the rapture? The book of Daniel does not speak to the question of the rapture. We'll talk about it, okay, because I'm, I'm hearing you. But it's not in the book of Daniel. So we're going to have to get the framework to, get to understand what Daniel is saying, and then we'll see where events like that fit into the framework that it provides. So what I'm going to do this morning is give you a composite picture of what is yet future based upon five visions in Daniel. Now, much of this is review. We've, re we've talked about it before, but you've not seen it all together. So we're going to look at five different visions in the book of Daniel, and what do we extract from that? All of them, I'm just going to focus on the content that focuses on the future. This is what we can learn from these five visions about what is yet future. So the first vision we're going to look at is the statue that is found in Daniel chapter 2. So Nebuchadnezzar had a nightmare, and not one of his Babylonian wise guys could interpret it. So he threatened the staff with death, always a good motivator. And Daniel secured time to request compassion from the God of heaven. He said, uh, could we put a hold on the kill order while I talk to my God and see if he will give us some information? And God graciously revealed the dream <clears throat> and its meaning to Daniel in a night vision. Uh, Daniel came then via Arioch, who was, a, kind of, I guess, kind of a liaison with Nebuchadnezzar, and came to him and explained God's motive, uh, Daniel did. He said, let me tell you why God did this. He wants to reveal to you something of the future. And then he perfectly recounted the king's dream. Now, in this dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a large statue. It was composed of four layers Gold at the top, then silver, then bronze, then iron, which was mixed with china or ceramic in the toes. And then a stone struck the toes, crushed the feet, which in turn set off a chain reaction, and the whole thing tumbled. 
and became like dust. And the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the iron and clay were reduced to dust particles and completely dissipated by the wind. There was no trace left of them. But the stone that hit these toes became a great mountain. So Daniel explained the meaning behind the dream. And we looked at that a long time ago when we did chapter 2. Each layer of this statue represents a phase of world history. And the last phase, which has iron and then iron and clay, uh, is the last phase of what is yet future for us. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. And here's what Daniel reveals of our future when he talks about that. And in that you saw, and he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's saying, and in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And iron and ceramic don't bond together. You can put them together, but they, they don't actually bond. So a final iteration of the iron phase will mix iron with fired clay or ceramic. It will be divided, but it will be strong. Daniel goes on. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So basically what he's telling us is a future kingdom is coming. This future kingdom will be a league of ten nations. The ten toes represent ten nations, and which means it would be something like, I'm not saying this is what it is. In fact, I don't think it is, but just to illustrate, this could be like a NATO or a G7, or BRICS, but, uh, and BRICS, that sounds brittle, I don't know. Uh, this future kingdom will be a league of ten nations that have consolidated. Some of them will be strong like iron, and some will be brittle like ceramic. There will be some sort of consolidation which brings these two groups of people together. But the, and the iron, I'm calling them the dominators, and the ceramic, I'm calling that the Brits, the brittle ones. The, the dominators and the Brits won't be truly blended and bonded together. So think of this as some sort of superficial oneness. And this league of ten nations will be in power when they are completely crushed and replaced by the stone cut out of the mountain without hands which means that this represents the last empire of man, and that's a reference to the return of Jesus to establish his eternal kingdom. So, Daniel 2.45, here's what he says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever and it says in the days of those kings and now he's referring back to toes that tells us that the ten toes are ten kings they're rulers some are iron rulers and some are clay rulers 
So here's a summary of what we get from the vision in chapter 2. Here's glimpse number one of the future. Prior to the establishment of the everlasting kingdom, a ten-nation confederation will exert its sovereignty over men. And this confederation will not be a company of equals. Some will be strong, others fragile. There will be some attempts to create a genetic bond between these two groups, but just as iron and clay don't bond with each other, whatever unity is established between the iron and the clay will be no true bonding between these two types of nations. Here's a simple one-statement summary for you. Uh, if you want to know what, based on the vision that was given to Nebuchadnezzar and then interpreted through Daniel, here's what he's saying. In the future, look for a union of ten nations who are not true equals. That's what's going to be in place when Jesus returns. All right, got that one? Ready for your second vision. This is the four, be four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. In the first half of chapter 7, Daniel had a vision of the future. <clears throat> he saw a succession of four great kingdoms, which were all depicted as beasts. But something about the fourth beast alarmed him. He was very distressed when he saw that, and so he sought additional information from an angelic bystander and who said this. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And that, the ten kings, you're hearing a repeat feature, right? Ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. This is a new data bit. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in the law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. All right, what did we learn about the future? Now, again, I'm not going into all the beasts because much of what uh, Daniel described has already happened, <clears throat> but this hasn't. This fourth beast is a kingdom, and this kingdom is going to shift the paradigm of what it means to be a kingdom. It's going to be in some way different <coughs> from what we're used to. This kingdom will be global in reach, this kingdom will be driven by consumption and domination. This kingdom will initially consist of a ten-kingdom confederation. But at some point, a new king is going to rise to power and defeat three of the kingdoms and take the lead of the whole. This upstart king is actually going to declare war against God and any who align with God. He will effectively overwhelm the saints. I'm not going to say he's going to totally wipe them out. God's going to intervene to help with that. But he is going to be doing a number on the saints. He will alter the calendar in ways that support his anti-God campaign. I don't know if that means he's going to have a calendar that doesn't have uh, after Christ as the denotation of anything in the A.D. side. He'll redefine right and wrong. He'll advocate pride for things that God condemns. 
He will actually say, for example, as it relates to child sacrifice, that uh, it is a good thing to sacrifice children. That's really a noble thing for us to do. Although this king will rewrite the book on time, he's going to structure some kind of new calendar, his ascendancy will be limited to two, three and a half years. Uh, his reign and his kingdom will be decisively and overwhelmingly defeated by the saints and the Son of Man who establishes an everlasting kingdom. And so once again, we're seeing the last kingdom before Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So glimpse number two, here's our core summary. Here's what we have learned. You know, in the previous one, we said, okay, we're going to have a ten-nation confederation in which there are both uh, iron and clay, so it's not going to be a true union of equals. Here's some additional information that Daniel 7 provides. Look for a God-hating upstart to defeat three of these nations and to launch a three-and-a-half-year unprecedented and prevailing campaign against the saints. So this is additional information that we add to what we learned from chapter 2. Next vision, the ram and the goat. This is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8 reveals a king from the last days of Greece. He's an ego-driven ruler intent on dominating God's people. This king, we can identify him as Antiochus IV. He liked to be called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, God manifest. And uh, he is going to be someone who gives us a preview of what the Antichrist is going to look like. Uh, he will oppose the prince of princes. His ascendancy will only last 1150 days, which is something that happened. He'll be broken, albeit not by human agency, which was true of Antiochus. But because of what chapter 11 tells us about Antiochus, he's actually giving us a preview of someone who is going to out-despicable Mr. Despicable. So Daniel 8, what do we learn? Look for someone who reflects but surpasses Antiochus Epiphanes in arrogance against God and animosity towards God's people. Now, be encouraged, God will prevail. But Daniel chapter 8 is adding to this template that we're building and saying, you want to see what this last king is like? Look at Antiochus Epiphanes and you'll say, this is like him only on steroids. The fourth vision, which is the 77s from Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel was praying, as you remember, in light of Jeremiah 29.10. He read about how 70 years had been decreed for Israel. And so he was thinking, whoa, I've almost been here in Babylon for 70 years. So maybe God wants to send us back. I'm going to start praying for that. And so he started praying, but his prayer request was much bigger than just the return. Uh, Jeremiah hinted that Daniel might be getting close to the return. But Gabriel, named angel, came in response to Daniel's prayer and explained to him how his prayer involves, the answer to his prayer, involves far more than mere physical return to Israel. There are deeper issues here that have to be resolved. The complete answer to Daniel's prayer would not be fully realized in 70 years, but in 70 sevens. And these sevens are seven-year periods. And 69 of those sevens, just about to the, to the day, 
predicted the triumphal entry of Jesus, but 1-7 has not been played out yet. And here's a description of it. This is from Daniel 9:27. And he, the prince to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, and that is 1-7. But in the middle of the seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So this one week, and again, I'm just reviewing things we've already talked about. If you're saying, I'm not getting this, we'll just go back to some previous sermons. They're all on the website. This one week is the final seven years. And a treaty is apparently going to be established at the start, but at the three and a half year mark, the treaty is going to be broken. Worship of God is going to be halted. It's going to become illegal to worship the one true God. It'll be replaced by something abominable, and unprecedented desolation will be unleashed. It is fixed and certain that the prince to come's plans will fail utterly. And in that moment, at the end of 70 years, Daniel's prayer will be fully answered. The things that he was praying for, which was really not just restoration to the land, but restoration of hearts and the establishment of the messianic kingdom, is actually going to be answered. By the way, for those of you who are being pretty attentive, when we talked about two weeks ago in Daniel uh, 12, or actually it was last week, 12:13, Daniel was told, you'll rise up in this moment. In other words, the answer to Daniel's prayer, he's actually going to be there for it. <laughs> he's going to come into his own and receive his allotment And Jesus could say, I don't know if he will say, but he'll say, hey, Daniel, you remember what you were praying when Gabriel came and he said, it's going to take 77s to do this. Here at the end of the 77, rise into your place in the kingdom that is being established. That'll be cool. So here's your summary from uh, Daniel 9. Look for a prince, oh, I'm going to actually give you a summary of all of them. Look for a prince to come who breaks a treaty after three and a half years and erects something abominable to launch a devastating campaign against the saints. That's what we get from chapter 9, all right? Uh, Here comes the fifth vision, which is the big picture, which is Daniel 10, 11, and 12. Because in chapter 10, he was praying. Then in chapter 11, the angel came and spoke to him. The message went through chapter 12, verse 4, and then there was a Q&A after that takes the rest of the book. So Daniel was praying for three weeks. An angel appeared to him and provided a 90-point historical checklist of coming events pertinent to Israel. He said, this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And we can look back at history and we can go, yep, yep, yep. Everything happened, 90 points of verification. The vision included a close-up of Antiochus IV. And this guy was a despicable, this is from verse 21 through 35, that we get this in chapter 11, that we get this close-up of Antiochus. And he was a despicable manipulator, working a cunning plan for personal advancement. He got the kingship by subterfuge. He used affirmation and rewards to dissuade others from living in a way that pleases God, and he replaced worship of God with worship of himself. 
using an idol as his centerpiece. But then in this vision in verse 36, the angel kind of looks through Antiochus, looks beyond to the last king who will operate from Antiochus's playbook. And this provides our most comprehensive description yet. And here's what we learn of this guy's heart. He genuinely believes the Antichrist, this last king before Jesus returns, he genuinely believes that he is superior to every other so-called God, including the one true God. His God is his capacity to control others, and he spares no cost to support his control God. And I don't know what that is, what it's going to be, but he is going to establish some kind of, and we'll call it an idol for now, some kind of idol that is capable of exerting control over all humankind. And if you receive his mark, you're in trouble. He requires all men to worship him as their God. He declares worship of the one true God as a capital offense. In other words, if you worship anybody other than me, so if you worship God, if you worship Jesus, that is punishable by death. And he has the means at his disposal to identify, isolate, and confront those who refuse to recant their belief and trust in God. How does he do this? I don't know. He rewards his sycophants with honor, position, and land. He will overwhelmingly defeat countries to the north and south. He'll occupy Jerusalem. He will conquer and plunder Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. We saw that a few weeks ago. Intel from uh, who, whatever mechanism he has is going to reveal that there are threats coming from the north and from the east. So he's in the Middle East. So north and east, he's going to hear trouble brewing. So he'll mobilize sufficient manpower to prevail against the opposition. But his demise will come and no one will help him. Uh, imagine living in a world... I mean, imagine this, where a king deems himself worthy to take God's place, and he is in power. Where he is the victor in every battle, he never loses until the last one. Where people who worship God or serve Jesus have no place, that is the world that is coming, according to this fifth vision, which is chapters 10, 11, and 12. So let me summarize what this template looks like, okay? And each vision of these five visions adds some more information to what we already learn. So from Daniel 2, what did we learn? Look for a union of ten nations who are not true equals. Okay, got it. Ten nations, and where we say one nation indivisible, this would be ten nations very divisible. So, okay, got it. Ten nations and not a solid union. Daniel 7, here's what it's adding. Look for a God-hating upstart. Okay, I got the ten kings, etc. But here's some upstart who's going to defeat three of them and launch a three-and-a-half-year unprecedented and prevailing campaign against the saints. So first vision, got ten kings. They are iron and clay. Second vision from Daniel 7 is, and there will be some upstart 
who conquers three of them and by that means takes control of the whole and he will unleash a three and a half year period of persecution against the saints. Daniel 8, which is the third vision. Uh, it adds to what we've just seen by saying, you want to get a close-up of who this guy is like? Look for someone who reflects but surpasses Antiochus Epiphanes in arrogance against God and animosity towards God's people. That's who he is. Okay, got it. Ten nations, not a good union. One comes, conquers three, takes control of the whole, and he's like Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay. In Daniel 9, look for a prince who breaks a treaty after three and a half years and erects something abominable to launch a devastating campaign against the saints. Okay, I got ten nations, unequally yoked. One guy comes, conquers three, takes control of the whole. He's like Antiochus Epiphanes and... At the three and a half year mark of this seven, he is going to establish this thing, whatever it is, this abominable statue. He's going to erect something abominable to launch a devastating campaign against the saints. When that thing is put up, that is like something that you hear Oh, if you're an emergency worker, if you're at a fire station, for example, there are different tones, and you recognize what you're dealing with. You know, okay, we're dealing with a medical situation, probably cardiac, based on the tone. Or we're dealing with a fire. And so you know the minute the tone sounds what you're dealing with before you get into the vehicle. Look for this guy to erect this image in the middle of the seven and that ought to set off an alarm that is uh, well we'll learn more about that in a couple weeks and then the last vision what did we add look for someone who establishes an expanding Middle Eastern Empire oh okay so this is in the Middle East where the center of this is and he is capable of eliminating any who do not worship him and his idol whatever that is. Well, here's what he's saying. When you see events moving into alignment with these predictions, we are getting close to Jesus' return. This is the last seven years before Jesus comes. Now, I realize in this room, and we will talk about this, uh, that there are very different views as it relates to eschatology. There are some in this room who are amillennial, which means that you believe that there will not be an earthly millennium, but instead those are just images that are talking about uh, going into eternity. There are premillennialists in this room who believe that Jesus will return to establish his earthly kingdom. And among premillennialists, there are those who have different views about something called the rapture. A tribulation period will precede the establishment of the kingdom. Everything in Daniel has communicated that. But will the saints be whisked off planet before this gets started? Will it happen in the middle of this period? Will it happen near the end? Something else? Great question. Not going to answer that this morning. Because I need to give you more information before you're ready for it. But what we do know and you can take this to the bank, is that Jesus wants us to live all out for him, to demonstrate the kind of prevailing faith that will be required in the tribulation right now. 
We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But the smart play is to live in readiness for him and willingness to incur cost today and every day. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Listen to this passage. This is a passage that is describing our present uh, in uh, Matthew 13 and parallel was in Mark 4. Uh, Jesus was dealing with a question. You know, in Matthew 12, it was certain that Jesus was going to be rejected by the religious leaders. They just hadn't worked it out, but they had already decided we're done with him. They were rejecting their Messiah. So in chapter 13, Jesus starts talking about the fact that there's going to be an interim. He is not going to go into Jerusalem and establish the millennial kingdom in that moment because he is going to be rejected. And it's all part of God's plan. He was rejected on the cross to pay for our sins. So Jesus started providing to his followers a description of, let me help you understand what is, it is necessary to know in the interim between what is going to happen on the cross and what is yet to come. So this is not a description of just something that's pertinent to a tribulation. This is a description of what is true for every follower of Jesus Christ between now and when he returns. You ready? In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction, which, by the way, that's the word thlipsis, which is the same word that in many places is translated tribulation. When affliction or persecution, diogmas, uh, arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. See what's going on here? Jesus is saying, we desperately need saints with tribulation-proof faith now. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about the tribulation because the tribulation is just taking tribulation to the max. But tribulation is, as far as Jesus is concerned, a part of our normal. And there will be those who, when the heat is on, fall away. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to be saints who when there is thlipsis, you don't fall away. You stay true to me. In fact, I want you to be those who bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. That's normal. That's what should be true in this season. In Matthew 24, Jesus said this, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. And you can go ahead and say, well, that could be the rapture, that could be the second coming, and I would say it's pertinent no matter which way you take it. Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not allowed him, not allowed his house to be broken into. Can you imagine this? Hello, uh, Mr. Fleming. Yes, uh, I'm a thief. I'm, I'm planning to come to your house on Saturday about 2 a.m. Just wanted to make sure that you were aware because, uh, you know, we, we plan to rob you blind, uh, whatever you got. So anyway, any questions? I don't think so. Uh, just come on through the front door. 
Will I be waiting for him? <laughs> Thieves don't make appointments because you would be ready. Jesus is saying, I want you, church, and I am joining him. I want you, church, to hold, your place, hold yourself in a place of readiness now. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. So, how, how am I supposed to be ready? All right, let me give you three. Live each day in a state of readiness to meet the Lord. Are you ready to meet him right now? If, if Jesus were to look you in the face right now, let's say he were to come, what would he say? Oh, here's one of mine. I know you. Or would he say, I don't know you. Now, there's a simple way to solve this problem. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all you need to do is pray and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I deserve eternal separation from you. But I know Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I am naming him as my Savior. It is on the basis of his death that I am saved. Now you're ready. Number two, live each day prepared to stay true to Jesus no matter what the world dishes out. Our world is changing. We've lived in a bubble, I think, where it was easy to be invisible Christians. You know, we follow Jesus, but we don't stick out. That is changing. So will we, will we live in ways where we're okay with standing out because I choose to believe what Jesus says. I am following Jesus and I don't care if it's unpopular. I don't care if I get canceled. I don't care if I go to jail. I follow Jesus. And that is not changing. Live each day in a state of readiness where you're ready, live each day prepared to stay true to Jesus no matter what the world dishes out, and then live each day unafraid because you know how your story ends. You can kill me, but this is amazing. Once you kill me, do you realize, uh, and I'm not talking to you because I, I don't want you to do that. That would be bad. But anyway, uh, if someone wants to persecute me and kill me, and so here's my dead carcass laying on the ground. There is no longer anything they can do to hurt me. All they've done is ensure that I'm in the presence of the Lord where I don't care what you do with the carcass. I know how the story is going to end. I name Jesus as my Savior. You do too. And we know where this ends in his presence. So take your shot, world. Don't care. Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. That's Jesus saying, once they kill you, what can they do? Nothing. 
You know, there was a moment. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. Mr. Bold for Jesus, right? And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, do not be afraid any longer. And the Greek there is actually a present tense with a negator, which means it's uh, stop being afraid. You're in the process of being afraid. Stop it. But go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul was afraid. And God said, stop being afraid and replace fear with speaking. Find ways to use bold words to defy fear. That's what my people do, Paul. And that's what we do. Well, I thought it would be interesting to invite uh, Pradeep Ayer to come join me. So come on up, Pradeep. Pradeep is going to bring this home. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> so you've been working in Southeast Asia, and uh, you've been, without getting into specific locations, just give us a general sense of what you do. Uh, to train and equip nationals to see the gospel proclaimed and to see vibrant communities of Jesus followers established, meaning simple, small churches, mm -hmm. and to grow and multiply. And we do this through biblical teaching, missions teaching, theology, and helping people to go from vision to strategies to strategizing. So, so are you, that's are the you role. Are you encouraged by what's happening? I mean, very, very encouraged yeah. by it. And my role is a player coach. So I like to be as close to the action, as yeah. close to the action as possible. Uh, yes, uh, encouraged by it because through the efforts of these nationals that we are training, and of course, God is working. Without God, mm -hmm. we can do nothing. Uh, we are seeing not only just the churches started, but the communities are transferred mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, because the gospel brings the secondary blessings of the gospel and the communities. And God is at work through amazing ways. And to use the book of Acts terminology, signs and wonders, mm -hmm. God is using physical healing. Mm -hmm. God is using deliverance from demon. Mm -hmm. And in last five years, one case of reliable source, and I've been to that place in mm -hmm. the people, a dead person, a lady, after being declared for 12 hours, came back to life. So uh, you come to the lunch and I'll tell you more. But So we don't hear this, but God is at work and God yeah. is using this uh, amazing ways and he's yeah. doing this. Yeah. So what, what kind of challenges are the people facing? Because unlike us, and this is kind of why I'm interested, right. mm -hmm. we live in a place where it is not that costly, at least right. today, mm -hmm. to name the name of Jesus. We're starting to see that change. but. In the place where you're ministering, it can be uh, very costly. Right. What yes. kind of challenges? What the are they challenge, dealing with? Well, one challenge they don't have is that they don't have to worry about the temperature in their church building <laughs> because they don't have AC, so they, uh -huh. they don't have that challenge. Uh -huh. But two, three places that we have worked, the Christians were driven out of their home for being a Christian and following Jesus because everybody else is other communities, either Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims. Mm -hmm. and and that is, can you, can you just imagine, they come knock on your door and, Jim and Rochelle, you have to leave this Kyle because you're following Jesus. So that is, and then they have to go and find the field and grow rice and so a lot of tremendous amount of uh, difficulties, political upheaval, um, opposition from religious leaders, constant opposition. So they, there are some challenges uh, and among other things, Christians fighting with one another. So, <laughs> 
They do that? Oh, they do, no. They do that, yeah. Oh. Deno denominationalism. Yeah. Anyway, that's a different I get story. It. I get it. I'm messing with you. Okay. That, yeah. that would not be unique to you. <laughs> so um, give me an example. Give me a story maybe of something that maybe ministered to you personally, something you would say, here's someone who named the name of Jesus, right. and here's what happened, and here's how that connected for you. Okay. In January 2019, in this one country, we started this training program to equip people to start uh, simple churches. And the one young man showed up. He was married, had two kids. Let's call him Fan Clean, okay, P PK. So mm -hmm. PK comes, and he's listening to all these challenges. We studied the Bible, and he said, I want to go to this area. I speak their language, and my mother comes from that community, and there are no believers. Mm -hmm. So... I'm going to move from this major city where he had a job. So he moves up there. Tremendous opposition from the local Buddhist priest. Mm -hmm. He says, you cannot be here. Mm -hmm. We know you're Jesus followers. You cannot do this. He was almost driven out, but few people helped him to continue. And it lasted for about seven, eight months, but God helped him overcome. So he stayed there. And few people came. He started a school. They're responding to the gospel. The next year, his one son died, hmm. and they were just devastated. We talked, we prayed with them, and the next year, their second son died, hmm. and they went away for three months, and they didn't know what to do because people said that, see, you're following Jesus now. He's killing your kids, mm -hmm. and then he decided, no, I'm going to go back. He went back. It's a long story, and there is a church of over 30 or 40 believers mm -hmm. uh, in this area. So that's, and I, I know this person. I mm -hmm. met with him. I've seen, met with his wife. We have eaten with them. Mm -hmm. So it's a personal story of, uh, yeah. of a person. He faced this opposition and decided to do it anyway. Yeah. So, you know, we, I'll speak for myself. Mm -hmm. I am inexperienced in living in that kind of world. Uh, I suspect I'm not alone in that. I, I want to be one who mm -hmm. flourishes for Christ when it is costly to do so. Mm -hmm. uh, what would the people that, among whom you have ministered, what would mm -hmm. they tell us if, if they were here and they said, let me help you understand mm -hmm. how you can live well for mm -hmm. Jesus, stay strong in your faith when you're dealing with the kind of stuff we've been dealing with? How, how would they counsel us or encourage us or challenge us or sure. whatever? Uh, Jimmy, if you want to experience, I can find you a house there and you and Rochelle can moo next month. You know, you can just kind of, you know. You'll, you'll, uh, I am very grateful for the invite. And, and, color, and the color of your skin, you'll be a target yeah. before anybody else. Anyway, uh, what would they say? I'm sorry. What, what would they say? They would say persevere, and we had this discussion. We were studying John 4, 15, 16, when Jesus mm -hmm. said this, and it was quite fascinating when people who were suffering, and he said, oh, Jesus said this. Oh, well, so we're not surprised because Jesus said, don't be surprised. But they would say persevere amid pain, suffering, opposition, and hostilities. He said, keep going because it gets better, and your faith will grow. They would say, don't invite mm -hmm. by being stupid. Mm -hmm. Don't look for it. But when mm -hmm. it does come, embrace it by God's grace mm -hmm. and it'll help you grow in your faith. Mm -hmm. So don't run from it. Yeah. Take it on. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read numerous accounts from people because I'm trying to mm -hmm. understand what's coming and how I can do well. One of the things I've heard is that oftentimes people who are going through these cost, costly encounters 
there's actually a sweetness to their relationship with the Lord or it's just like a, a time in which the Lord is more real to them. Has that been true, you think? Or? Yeah, that is true in, in my life. I have experienced, but the people that I've talked to, they would say as you're having dinner with them and they would tell the story and almost like this is part of life. And I'm saying, where is that? They would tell story of this happened and I was driven out of the house, then my son died and my our house was burned up in Sudan, mm -hmm. other places, and they, they would just say, well, we'll have to rebuild this again. There is just some kind of joy in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's just sweet to see, Jim, but it's, you just have to go and sit with these people and to find yeah. out what is, where did they get it, and it's the Lord, definitely, yeah. and you ask them, and you said, well, it's Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we've got a uh, lunch, lunch afterwards, and people can come to the fellowship hall and, and hear some more and get some more, right? Yes. Thank, thank you. you so thank much you for sharing much, with yeah. us. So what Daniel has done is given us a template. Here's a picture of the seven last years before Jesus comes. Uh, Jesus also provided the template. That's in, at the Mount of Olives. And John on the Isle of Patmos also provided the template. And if you see how those templates are interconnected, then you can start asking the question, All right, where do I put certain events? And that will have to be some questions and answers that we talk about in a few weeks. Right now, what I want you to know is simply this. Live all out for Jesus. Make every day count. Be bold for him, not afraid. And let's see what God wants to do with us. Let's pray. Father, would you make of us a bold, courageous people? Uh, we want to be those who are ready to meet you right now, unashamed. But if you tarry, we are ready to stand well and represent you well no matter what the world throws at us. Father, I am desperate for this people to be a blazing, bright light to the people around them. And part of that is by living all in for you. Help us to become that. Show us what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.